Lord, we do confess the truths of that song that all we have really is you. We have nothing else to rely on, nothing else that spares us from the wrath of hell, nothing else that makes us right with you, nothing else that saves our souls. There's nothing else that satisfies like you or or gives purpose like you or fulfills like you in every way, God, both for this life and the life to come. We confess that all we have is you. Let that foundational truth permeate our study this morning. As we open your scriptures, let us be reminded constantly that what we read is beyond our own strength. That the only hope we have is to come to you in faith. I pray and ask that this morning you would overcome pride and disillusionment and distractions. That you would let the veil of the hearts of the lost fall. That they would see their complete need for you today. Pray you'd bring us to repentance. And I ask that you would give faith. Faith to the lost and faith to your children. You'd help this church grow in faith. Let your word have a piercing effect upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take your Bibles with me and open them to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Verse 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. We will primarily be in verse 11 and verse 12. But really, verse 8 through verse 23 is all one section. And that section can be divided verse 8 through verse 15 and verses 16 through 23. So I want to read them all together to try to keep you in the context, although we'll focus pretty exclusively on verse 11 and verse 12. I want to ask you a question that I think you will have the answer to pretty quickly, Um, at least You'll know the terminology, and then I want to press you on your answer a little bit. The question I have is, um, right now, what do you think your greatest need is? Your ultimate need, your, your most pressing, supreme need. For believer and unbeliever alike, most of our lives are spent in judgment of that question. And that question has varying degrees of significance, but for the most part, uh, the determination of our needs governs most of our thinking and most of our behavior. From the mundane areas of life to the most uh, life-altering decisions, uh, we, we have a very real concern with our needs. We buy our groceries based on need. We spend our money based on need. We use our time based on our needs. Once we identify a need within our lives, we immediately begin to reconcile it and address it. 
As believers, we know what our greatest need is, and we also know that most people ignore, by and large, our greatest need. Our greatest need for all humanity is to be right with God. Now, you might have answered that question, what is your greatest need? You might have answered it with the word salvation. We typically condense such language down into that singular word salvation. It's almost a catch-all, and, and rightfully so. But really, our greatest need, if we can be specific, is to be right with God. And I want to press you a little bit on that. What does it mean to be right with God? As precise and as specific as you can answer that question, you need to wrestle with it. What does it mean to actually be right with God? Are we talking about Living a life that pleases Him? Are we talking about strict obedience to the law of God? Are we talking about moral obedience? Are we just merely talking about your heart? And the condition of your heart? And the attitude and perspective of your heart? Are we talking about a conglomeration of several things? What do we mean... When we say that you must be right with God. And further still, even more important, what do we mean uh, when we say or, or ask, what's the answer to being right with God? How are we right with God? If you are a good Southern Baptist or a good uh, church goer, maybe you've grown up around church your whole life, you have probably given the Sunday school answer to that question in your mind, and you will say, Jesus. How are we right with God? Jesus. And you're not wrong. But let's press it a little further. In what way does Jesus make us right with God? Well, Jesus deals with our sin, doesn't he? Our great issue in life is sin. And what prevents us from being right with God is our sin. And so, therefore, we can say humanity's greatest need is to have their sin dealt with. But how do we deal with our sin? Becomes the next question, the new question. And there are all, are all sorts of answers to that question. Both in an eternal perspective and in a practical perspective. Eternally speaking, how do we deal with our sin on an, on an eternal cosmic level? There's all sorts of answers that people give to atone for your wickedness to make you right with God. You do this, you do that, you pray this, you pray that, you say this, you say that, you believe this, you believe that. Practically speaking, what about the consequences and effects of sin in our life? What do you do about your addiction to immorality? What do you do about your addiction to, to substance abuse? What do you do about your anger problem? What do you do about your gossip problem? What do you do about the, the deteriorating state of your marriage? What do you do about the fact that you're a very, very poor parent? How do we deal with sin in those regards? The great issue in life is dealing with our sin because our sin not only is what wreaks havoc on our day-to-day -day existence on this earth, but it is also what prevents us from being made right with God. And so we come back to our answer, Jesus. Jesus is 
how we are made right with God, but in what way? And here's where we enter in the very central fact of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Your sin will not, cannot be dealt with, even really addressed apart from the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. False teaching arises when that answer is deviated from. When human philosophy, as Paul talks about in verse 8 of this chapter, when, when human tradition or elemental principles of the world begin to try to answer life's greatest question and greatest need, anything that, as Paul says in verse 8, that's not according to Christ, that tries to address or deal with our sin, is a false teaching. For only Christ can deal with our sin. Only the cross and only the resurrection has eternal significance upon humanity's greatest need. But further still, in what way does the cross and the resurrection deal with our sin? Is it merely in a relabeling? Because we believe this, does God now relabel us as that? Or, or is it some mystical or magical infusion that takes place? Some spiritual infusion that takes place? Simply because we confess that we believe one thing, does God now zap us with something unique and different? Or does the Bible tell us that there is something real and something significant and something universal that signifies the dealing with sin? I think it does. So I've taken you on a roller coaster now. Let me try to recap as best as I can. Our greatest need is to be right with God. And we're not right with God because we have a problem of sin. Our sin has to be dealt with. And our sin is only dealt with through Jesus. But not in some mystical, magical, mysterious sort of way. Specifically through His cross and resurrection. And therefore, and still, not just in some mystical... Uh, magical sort of way, but in a very specific way. The cross and the resurrection brings about some universal significant change in your life. And what does the Bible call it? In John chapter 3, Jesus calls it being born again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul calls it being made new. Putting off the old, putting on the new. We need our sin to be dealt with, to be right with God. And the way our sin is dealt with is when Christ makes us new. If you are not made new, your sin is not being dealt with. That's what Paul comes to draw our attention to this morning. That what we need is not... Um, Simple moral reform or moral obedience or behavior change or some external act to make us right with God. What we need is a complete and entire overhaul of the depths of who you are. We need Christ's penetrating, deep, lasting, internal work to be made right with God. False teaching comes about when varying answers that are not built upon Christ are given to such questions as I've asked this morning. 
In fact, if you look into verse 23 of this chapter, verse 23 is kind of this underlying point of verses 8 through 23. It's this foundation. And Paul really summarizes the, the vanity of false teaching. He says, these, these false teaching rules and regulations, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Two, two things I would say very quickly right there about that verse. Number one, false teaching appears to be right sometimes. It sounds good. It has an appearance of, of wisdom. It even seems profitable for us. That word, uh, I do need to define for you that word asceticism because uh, I, I would venture guess not many of us use it in our everyday language. If you do, you've got other problems. But asceticism means to attain a high standard of spirituality or a high moral standard by virtue of self-denial, self-deprecation, self-harm. In other words, I'm beating myself into submission to be godly. And not in the sense that Paul uses it in other places, but in the sense of earning my salvation and my right standing before God. Paul writes and he says, these things, these false teachings that think, that tell you they have the answer to your need, that tell you they have the answer to your sin, that tell you they have the answer to being right with God, they even appear to be right. They sound good, they feel good, they appear good, they seem wise, they seem profitable, they seem intelligent, they even seem to be built on the truth of Scripture. But in reality, they are of no value in addressing the reality of your need. And what is the reality of your need? Verse 23, stopping the indulgence of the flesh, dealing with your sin. And as we'll see in just a moment, not just your acts of sin. When the Bible uses the phrase flesh, it refers to the very sinful nature that you possess. We're not talking about just covering up your symptoms. And putting on a good show. We're talking about the very deep things of your heart. Those things that only God sees. Those things that only you know about. We're talking about the thoughts that you have, the motivations that you have, the desires that you have, the wicked wants that you have. Your, your actions, your words, your deeds, those things are sinful. I'm talking about the very corrupt nature of your heart. Paul says these false teachings are of no value in addressing that. If you think just your sinful deeds are all that God cares about, you've missed the point. If you think that if I just act better, I'll be right with God, you've missed the point. God cares as much about your sinful actions as He does about your sinful nature, your sinful heart, your corrupt soul. Your wicked mind. So we have false teaching, verse 23, that appears to be good, sounds good, feels good, seems to be profitable. 
but in reality, it's of no value in addressing the very deep issue of your soul. So we back up to verse 8, where we were last week. And it's no wonder Paul says, watch out and make sure that no one takes you captive by false teaching. Watch out that no one takes you captive by philosophies of empty deceit. According to these human traditions, according to these basic principles and elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Watch out. Make sure. See to it that you're not, as we identified last week, carried off as plunder. Because there are false teachings out there that tell you they have the answer to your great needs, but in reality they are of no value in addressing the indulgence of the flesh. I have in my notes here a phrase that I told myself to share with you explicitly, so I better do that. I wrote that there are good sounding arguments that are not founded upon Christ that appear to be right, but really they don't address the inward need of the soul. That's what we're talking about, the inward need need of the soul. And so Paul writes verse 11 and 12 and he tells us well back into verse 8 he tells us don't don't be carried away don't be taken captive by these philosophies or false teachings if we want to summarize them these things that aren't built upon Christ because verse 9 Christ is the one uh, where the whole who the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority how well, because verse 11, verse 12, you've been made new. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You remember Paul's whole purpose in writing this letter. Is to give the antidote to this false teaching. And the antidote for Paul is to remind you of Christ. And to uphold the glories of Jesus and what you have in Jesus. So verse 8, he's warning us, don't be taken captive. Because, verse 10, you're filled in Christ. You have all that you need. Verse 11 and 12, the, the inner... Depths of your soul are addressed in Christ alone as opposed to any external effort or work. So that's the whole point here. In Jesus, we are made right before God because our sin is dealt with because he makes us new. We don't need anything else to be made new. We've been made new in Christ. Now I'm going to refer to this as Paul does at the end of verse 11 as the circumcision of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at its form, we're going to look at its purpose, uh, we're going to look at its means, and then we're going to look at how we secure this circumcision of Christ. Let's begin with its form. Verse 11, in Him also you were circumcised, and we'll talk about that if I remember in a moment, that that is a matter of fact for Paul, it's a past tense, which indicates he's talking about an, uh, an event, a moment, conversion. But he says, you were circumcised. And then he describes this circumcision with a circumcision made without hands. That's its form. It's spiritual by nature. And we have the same questions Nicodemus had in John chapter 3. 
in, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Essentially, he's saying, how, how can that be? We have the same question about the circumcision of Christ. How can that be? What are you talking about, Paul? What, what do you mean? He means something intensely, specifically, distinctly spiritual. I believe Paul here is drawing a clear difference between the circumcision of Christ and Old Testament circumcision. Old Testament circumcision was outward by its nature. The circumcision of Christ is inward by its nature. Old Testament circumcision was an external sign that set the people of Israel apart from everybody else around them. It had, in my estimation, both a spiritual and a national component to it. It was spiritual in the sense that it was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. But it was national in the sense that it was a national law required for all Israelites. Now granted, in Israel's time, they were a theocracy. You can't really divide religion and state as hard and fast as we do for their history. But nonetheless, I'm saying this to say there's an inward component to Old Testament circumcision and an external component to Old Testament circumcision. In one regard, it pointed to, an, to a covenant with, with God. And in another re regard, it set you apart in your nationality from everybody else. Contrasting is verse 11, the circumcision of Christ, which is not national and not external, but totally internal. In fact, the circumcision of Christ transcends all those external boundaries, social boundaries and nationalities. We look at passages like Ephesians 2 and, and Ephesians 3 and, and Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 that says the gospel is, is broad in its application. It transcends nationality and ethnicity and background and culture and socioeconomic status and any other social boundary we want to put on it. So whereas Old Testament circumcision was specific and detailed and just for the people of Israel and just for the nation of Israel and its external component, the circumcision of Christ is not only inward, but it's broad and it transcends all of those boundaries. It deals with a spiritual reality. I think Paul is getting to all of that subtly when he says it's a circumcision made without hands. Because Old Testament circumcision couldn't be made without hands. He's saying this is something different. This is something unique. This is something spiritual. This is something done in the heart and only accomplished by the Spirit of God. So understand, when we come to talk about the circumcision of Christ, we are not talking about external matters. We're not talking about the effects of behavior change. We're not talking about being a better person. Those things are a byproduct. What we're talking about is internal regeneration, internal change, an internal replacement of your entire self. We're talking about spiritual matters. When Christ brings about 
the working of salvation. You need to understand that he's addressing the very depths of who you are. Christ is changing your desires. Christ is changing your pleasures. Christ is changing your wants. Christ is changing your thoughts. Christ is changing your perspective. Mere behavior change, mere moral alignment, it's not the end goal. Comprehensive internal change is the end goal. When we talk about the circumcision of Christ, we're talking about inward surgical work done by the Spirit of God. That's its form. What is its purpose? It tells us in verse 11, Purpose is putting off the body of the flesh. That's the internal work of Christ. That's the internal circumcision of Jesus. This spiritual work that He accomplishes is putting off, getting rid of your body of flesh. Not in the sense of perfection, but in the sense of sanctification. Now you remember I said earlier when we were talking about verse 23 and and other parts that when the scriptures refer to your flesh it most often refers to your sinful nature and that's what Paul intends here the circumcision of Christ this spiritual inward surgical work of the spirit of God is addressing your sin nature the corruption of your very soul verse 23 Our sin nature needs to be addressed. Our sin nature needs to be dealt with. And nothing external like self-made religion, asceticism, severity or punishment to the body or good works or disciplines, none of those things are of value in addressing your sinful nature. You need this, verse 11, inward work of Christ. That has always been the plan for God. If you look, let's, let's look at a few other passages. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Old Testament. I want you to see it's always been God's plan. It's always been God's desire to address the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God belong to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. So here's the the instruction, verse sixteen. Circumcise therefore 
the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise your heart. It's your heart that God is after. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 6, it's said again. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We flipped over to Jeremiah chapter 4. We won't do it right now, but Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. It said again, circumcise your heart. Romans chapter 2, Paul expounds on circumcision. Verse 25, he says, if circumcision, or he says, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written law, a written code and circumcision but break the law. Here's what I want you to see, verse 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and listen what Paul says. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit of God, not by the letter. God has not been, was not, only concerned with external acts. God has always been concerned with your heart. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. That's why Paul can write, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but being a new creation. What matters to God? What makes us right with God? Dealing with our sin. And what does dealing with our sin mean? Just being better people? Trying to cut back on sinful deeds? No, God is concerned with your heart. Dealing with your sin starts in your soul. A place, or get this, a place where you cannot reach. The circumcision of Christ is what we need. And that circumcision is a surgical work inwardly of the Spirit of God. And its work, its surgery is accomplishing the purpose and the goal of putting off the body of the flesh. Something that, verse 23, nothing else can claim to do. Something that nothing else can accomplish. Christ can accomplish. He puts off your body of the flesh. God is concerned about the very secret places of your soul. I want you to see it again. Just let me flip over here real quick if I can find it quickly. If not, I'll give up. But Ezekiel chapter 36, to your benefit, I found it quickly. Verse 22, talking about this new covenant that's going to come with Christ. God says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, 
but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declared the Lord declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Church, God is and has always been concerned with the heart. And not just enhancing the heart, but radically replacing it. Christ didn't die to make you or me a better you or me. Christ died to conquer our sinful flesh that we might be made new. This is the circumcision of Christ. Putting off this body of flesh. In chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul's going to reference it again. He references it, I believe, in a different fashion in verse 5 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Earthly is in fleshly. But he says it explicitly in verse 9 and verse 10. Do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing because you have put off the old self with its practices and have instead put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul's addressing false teaching by pointing us to Christ because he knows Christ is the only one that addresses our real need of inward spiritual soul work. Nothing else. That church is the very gospel call of God. It's a call that requires you to relinquish yourself. When Jesus writes or speaks, teaches and says, deny yourself and take up your cross, that's not some poetic way to call you to commitment. He's calling for a complete surrender of self. A complete giving up of your entire self. That you might fully and completely be made new. The standard of, of salvation and of examining your salvation, the evidence of salvation in your life, is not better Bible understanding. It's being made new. It's having the circumcision of Christ. Remember, I said back in verse 11, this is, in Paul's mind, a mark, a moment. You were circumcised. Past tense, matter of fact, true or not true, yes or no, you were or you weren't. And you were for these Colossian Christians. 
which means Christ is working in you to put off the old self and to put on the new self. That is the standard of regeneration. That is conversion. If your heart is not being changed, then I would say you do not know the salvation of Christ. And you'll recall earlier I said that we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about sanctification. Sanctification is a, is a process. Perfection doesn't happen instantaneously by God's providence. But if you're not examining your soul according to the standard of a true, genuine heart change, then you don't know the salvation of Christ. And I don't say that to say it. I say it to warn you. You may be guilty of verse 23. Believing in things, listening to things, agreeing things and, and with things and thinking things that sound good and feel good but are really of no value in addressing your needs. The scriptural standard of conversion is new life. How does he accomplish such things? I'm trying to be very thorough, but, but also move along. Verse 12 tells us how he accomplishes such internal transforming work. By being buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who also raised him from the dead. Let me start by saying this. This kind of circumcision of Christ, this spiritual transformation, this, this putting off the old and putting on the new, being born again, it happens in what baptism signifies. It happens in what baptism signifies. Now, I believe personally that there is a spiritual resemblance between baptism and circumcision. In which baptism does not replace circumcision, but reflects an inward fulfillment of circumcision. And the language is very important. I do not think baptism has replaced circumcision. I think baptism reflects a fulfillment of circumcision. Now when Paul is talking here in verse 11, he's talking about conversion. Some people have taken verse 12 to mean that we are circumcised by being baptized. Uh, baptized. Well, if we maintain that Paul is talking about conversion in verse 11, which I believe that he is, then we cannot say that baptism is what converts us. For the Scriptures are clear, baptism does not convert. Baptism reflects. It pictures and declares what has happened inwardly. I do not believe Paul is saying that this inward circumcision that's made without hands has to be accomplished by an external sign and act of baptism. John MacArthur put it more simply. He said, I do not believe Paul is exchanging one religious rite for another religious rite. The circumcision he talks about in verse 11 is unmistakably spiritual. I do not think it is accomplished by something external like baptism. 
So I come back to say what I said. This circumcision in verse 11 happens in what baptism signifies as described in verse 12. Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 6 where it's primarily used, I believe, spiritually. He says in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Different, different yet similar language. Same principle. Paul's dealing with the old self, the old self being brought to nothing and being signified in what baptism reflects. So all that to say, Verse 12 is describing to us the way circumcision is accomplished. And it's not in what baptism is, but what it reflects. And what does it reflect? Being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. How do you put off the indulgence of the flesh? How do you put off the, the old man? How do you put off your sinful nature? You kill it. How do you get rid of the old self? You die. And you're buried. In other places, Paul says you're crucified. My flesh is crucified with Christ. Again, God didn't send His Son to enhance you. God sent His Son to crucify your old sinful flesh. And when you're dead and buried, then you're able to be resurrected. And when resurrected, you're born. And new life is given to you. And things begin to change for you. You begin to have a taste for the gospel. A taste for the glories of heaven. A desire to be with God. The one whom you used to rebel against, now you long for. How is the old man dealt with? It's by dying with Christ. And also being resurrected with Christ. Finally, real quick, please stick with me because this last point, how we secure such things and attain such things is most important. Because none of this can be accomplished in our own strength or by our own ability. There's a key phrase in verse 12 that tells me that Paul's not talking about the rite of baptism in its physical sense that I think is the key to the whole passage. having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, and here's the phrase, through faith. Baptism is a work. It's an act. It's not faith. And, and whatever else these false teachers are propagating in verse 23, they're acts. They're not faith. Being born again attaining, securing the circumcision of Christ, being made new by putting off the body of the flesh and putting on the, the righteousness of Christ is accomplished through faith. That's it. Faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. 
Notice where that faith is to be placed. In the powerful working of God. Which means this circumcision of Christ, this being buried and raised with Him, it's a work of God, not a work of self. Something only God brings about, not you. That's why we use the word very deliberately, regeneration. You cannot regenerate yourself. You cannot breathe life into your own dead soul. Only God can do that. You cannot cause yourself to be born again, Nicodemus. Only God can do that. We have faith in the powerful working of God. And faith in that God is what secures or attains the circumcision of Christ, which deals at the very depths of who we are with our sin nature. And dealing with sin at the very depths of who we are in our sin nature is what makes us right with God. Not behavior change. I tell you all of that to say this last final point. I think most Christians are in danger of, by virtue of their own sinful hearts that are deceptive beyond measure, according to Scripture. I think most of us are, are guilty of transforming the gospel and building assurance and faith on the thought that we can just be better people and please God. That we can grit our teeth, clench our fists, try harder, make more resolutions, resolve with greater commitment, whatever you want to say. And in that way, please God. The truth is, the issue is much deeper. We cannot change our hair color or our eye color. How could we change our hearts? We need God's intervention. We need to come to God in faith and plead with Him for this inward spiritual surgery that only He accomplishes where He takes away what is sinful and replaces it with what is righteous. Where He takes away ourself and fills us with Christ. Don't be caught up, as Paul says in verse 8 and verse 23, in good-sounding arguments that are really of no value in addressing your greatest need. The Scriptures are Lord. His Gospel is plain as day. Come to God in faith. And in faith in the powerful working of God, you might be born again. Plead with the God of heaven and earth to circumcise your heart and cause you to be born again. For that is the only way to be saved. If you are by God's grace already born again. Let me encourage you. Keep putting off the body of flesh. Utilize the sufficiency of Christ. Utilize the grace of God's spirit in your life. Utilize the scalpel of scripture. To cut away this heart of stone, this wicked flesh that dwells within you, and to walk in the joy of holiness and the pleasure of God's presence. Keep putting off the body of flesh.